My name's Nick. If I haven't met you, uh, lead pastor here. I'm going to get us into God's word um, right away. Let's do it. If you need a, a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we will get one to you. But we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 17 this morning. Reading verses 20 down through verse 37. So if you know anything about me and the way I, I teach, this is going to be a lot for me. There's, there's like 17, 18 verses here. This is, this is going to be intense. <laughs> uh, so Luke chapter 17, verses uh, 20 through 37. I'll give you a chance to get there. We'll read it, pray, and then uh, dive in. Okay. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. <laughs> Gosh, it's intense. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, even reading through your word here, there's a certain sobriety it brings. We may be inclined, <laughs> uh, given our comforts or our ease or the things that we have in this world to uh, get a little bit distracted, a little bit inebriated, a little bit uh, numb uh, to ultimate realities. We, we can feel like we're fine. We can feel like things aren't that big of a deal. We can feel like we've got stuff under control. Then we open up your word and we just get hit with a truck sometimes. We just get woken up. The son of man is coming. The king is coming. God, I pray that this morning you would ready our hearts for such an arrival. 
you would show us, God, the places uh, where we have been wandering, the places where our affections have been divided, and you would unite us in the fear of your name. God, I pray that you would help me. I want to speak your words and, and nothing else. I pray I'd be your instrument for the sake of your glory and the good of the people that you've gathered and assembled here in your presence this morning. So would you do that? I ask in Jesus name. Amen. Um, Okay, we're going to kind of ease our way into this text. Uh, and some of the heavier hitting words come a little later, but there are some things in the beginning that I wanted to talk about to kind of set this up as well. I, I wonder if you notice that our text begins with a reference there in verse 20 to a, a question um, from the Pharisees. It seems they were asking Jesus uh, a certain question, and it seems that question was, hey, Jesus, when is the kingdom of God going to come? When is the kingdom of God going to arrive? Where is it? When is it? We want it, but I don't see it. It's a good question, I think. I, I, we're prone to read, I think, anything that the Pharisees say uh, with a bit of suspicion. Uh, we kind of wonder what they've got, what their game is, and what they're going to do. I think this is perhaps an honest question. And it's one that, though we might not put it in that verbiage, we all ask in one way or another. We might not say, where is the kingdom? When is it going to come? But my guess is we all have in one way or another when looking out at the mess of this world or the mess of our lives. Said things perhaps with with angst, frustration, confusion, longing like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, I read in the Bible one thing about you, and then I look out at my life, and I see something else. It doesn't look like your kingdom, your reign is here. It looks like other stuff is getting the upper hand. When is your kingdom going to arrive? Don't you turn on the evening news sometimes and wonder just that? I do. I do. But the verses before us here are given to address these kinds of questions and kind of help us make sense of it. Um, help us make sense of our place in God's plan. Uh, because it is confusing, it is complicated, and we do feel what these Pharisees were feeling. I'll bring more of that out as we go. But what I want to do here this morning is divide this text really into three headings. Um, you may not understand what I mean by these headings at first, uh, but hopefully in time you will. Uh, first, uh, we're going to look at the already, the already, and that is verses 20 to 21. Then we're going to look at the not yet, and that's verses 22 to 30. And then finally, we're going to come out in verses 31 through 37 with this idea of the in-between, uh, the in-between, the already, the not yet, and the in-between. Y'all feeling good? Y'all awake? You ready to dive in? You got your bagels, you got your coffee, let's go. All right, the already, verses 20 to 21. Um, there's something that we need to know uh, that we can sometimes 
uh, miss when we look at things from our place in the plan of God, from our place in redemptive history on the other side of the cross. And that is we can forget, we can kind of judge the Pharisees, the Jews in their day for kind of not seeing Jesus as king, not getting it. We can, we can be kind of frustrated, like, what is up with these guys? There he is. Jesus is here. How come nobody cares? And one of the things we have to remember contextually is it actually would have been quite complicated for them to see this. When you're reading through the Old Testament and you don't have the lens of the New Testament to read back, you know, on it, uh, what you see is that, man, this, this coming day of the Lord, this coming kingdom of God and all of these things that the Old Testament talks about, it appears from many of the texts to, to kind of be this one cataclysmic, dramatic moment in history where God's going to come in power and make things right. And he's going to do it perhaps through the anointed one, the Messiah. And so the idea was, man, there's going to be this one day, this one dramatic moment, and it's coming. I can't wait. But what we start to see play out when Jesus gets on the scene and they're all disoriented and confused. <laughs> Wait, you're claiming to be the king. Where's the kingdom? But what, what we start to see is that what appeared from the Old Testament vantage point to be one dramatic event, the coming of the kingdom, the day of the Lord, is in fact spread out, you might say, into two. There is, if you will, two advents. There are two comings. The kingdom is going to come kind of phase one. The kingdom is going to come phase two. Phase one, we're about to enter into a celebration of that with Christmas, right? That's phase one. That's advent number one. Advent number two is what Jesus is going to talk about here. The day of the son of man or the day of the Lord when he's, he's going to come ultimately in power and make all things right. But there's this. There's this kind of two-phase reality that from Old Testament perspective, they didn't see it. They didn't get it. It was confusing. It was complicated. Um, But what we might say now, in other words, is that uh, when it comes to the coming of the kingdom and the way it's going to play out in this world, there, there are, in essence, two aspects to it. There is an already aspect to it. Christmas has happened. And there is a not yet aspect to it. The last day is not yet here. His second coming has not occurred. Verses 20 to 21 in particular bring out this already piece. And like I said, we'll move on as we move on. We'll see the not yet piece. And then we'll come out with the question. Well, what, what about for us now in between? So verses 20 to 21, look at them again. Um, I'm going to read them to you here being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, a couple things on this. When Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, we can't misunderstand him. We can't, we, we don't want to misunderstand him. He's not saying that there aren't going to be signs. He talks about that in John's gospel. He talks about that all over the place that the, actually the signs of the kingdom are here. Okay. There are many miracles. In fact, we just came out of a story. If you were here with us last week, the healing of the 10 lepers, I mean, that's power, that's authority. That's the kingdom and the king coming to bear on a broken world. 
So there are signs, there are things that would evidence that the king and the kingdom are here. But, and here's the point that I think Jesus is making. These are not the kind of signs that the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, expected. Nor is it, if they were to be honest, the the sort of signs that they really, truly wanted. (laughs) They would look at it and kind of go, okay, I mean, great. Heal the leper. (laughs) That sounds good. All right. Yep. Restore sight to the blind. Care for the orphan. Care for the oppressed. That sounds great. But um, there's one piece that I'm reading about in the prophets that I really want to see. Like how about how about the reigning and and and, and the, the kingdom and the throne and the political liberation and the vindicating our nation before the eyes of all the other nations and the overthrow of Rome so that we're no longer under their thumb and we actually get to you know stand in our land in peace and what about all that? What what about that? The power. Care for the oppressed, care for the broken, care for the poor. Fine. But we want the throne. Where is the throne? And Jesus is saying, I think, phase one of the kingdom's arrival isn't going to look like that. That's coming phase two. (laughs) That's coming later. Christmas, that's not what we see, is it? Christmas is about a helpless little baby lying in an animal's feeding trough in the back of a forgotten barn in the middle of a cold, dark night with no one to celebrate but a few mangy shepherds. That's phase one of the kingdom's entrance. It seems small. It seems insignificant. It seems like nothing is going. It seems like a mustard seed, if you remember that parable. So small, nothing. Where, where, where's, the, where's the fireworks? Where's the glory? It is a baby and a, to these two poor folks here in an animal's feeding trough. This is the kingdom of God breaking in. It's so small. So small, you might even miss it. And yet the kingdom of God is here already. Nonetheless, and that's what Jesus means when he goes on to say to them, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You're looking around wondering, where's the scepter? Where's the throne? I'm saying, listen, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you now. The Greek on that is difficult. I'm not going to take you into all the various interpretations. I think the one that the ESV brings out uh, is probably right here where it's saying that the kingdom of God is, is kind of in the midst of you, which we would take to mean, listen, the kingdom of God is right here in the person of Jesus. In other words, you're saying, where is the kingdom? Jesus is saying, you are looking at it. It's right here. <laughs> It's right here. And this makes sense in one, in, when you really think about it, because um, if Jesus is the king, 
of this kingdom. Well, then where the king goes, so to speak, so goes the kingdom. And that's why we'll see Jesus say certain things throughout the gospels. I'll give you just a couple examples. Back in Luke eleven twenty, after casting out a demon, I wonder if you remember what he said. He cast this demon out of this man, and then he's talking to the Pharisees and things as they're kind of always coming back at him. And he says this, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, with this finger coming from the king, I just brought the kingdom to bear on this oppressed man's life. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is the sphere of the son's reign. And I just exhibited my reign right before you. Satan, get off my land. And he goes, kingdom. We're back in Matthew's gospel. We read that after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and he's anointed with the spirit, he went about preaching. Matthew four seventeen, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven or God is at hand. Repent because the king is here. In other words, I'm coming. I'm coming. Like, like John the Baptist would say, prepare the way get ready. Lift every valley up. Take every mountain down. The king and the kingdom is at hand. Where the king goes, the kingdom goes with him. But again, this kingdom, though it is already here, um, is not here yet with the signs and wonders and fireworks that the Jewish people were expecting. That's come in phase two. That's part of the not yet and so now let's look at the second heading then the not yet verses 22 to 30 because that's really where jesus goes um in one sense the kingdom is already present in another sense it's not yet here in full and jesus wants his disciples and he wants you and i to be clear on this because what we realize is that you and I are going to have similar struggles that the Pharisees actually at the beginning, back up in verse 20 have. We're going to, st- we're going to have times where we're wondering, wait, where is the kingdom? What happened? Uh, and that this is what we see as we look at verses 22 to 24. Jesus wants to clarify, not just for the Pharisees now, but especially for his disciples. What to expect and what it means that there's an already not yet aspect to the kingdom. There's two phases to it. This is what he says. Verse 22. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So let me break some of this down. So the disciples, you and I, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne, but in heaven, We're going to find ourselves confused. We're going to find ourselves disoriented. We're going to find ourselves in the place where those Pharisees were desiring to see one of the days of the son of man, which just means desiring to see him come in his glory, desiring to see the king in all of his glory, come and make things right. We're going to desire to see that. And yet he says, 
You will not see it. At least not yet. You're going to want to see something that is not yet. Now, there is something. I wanted to linger on this because there is something so important for the child of God at this point. There is something so life-giving, so, so, so critical, so reorienting in what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here. And I want to linger with it on you. And that's this, that in between the first and second advents of Christ, in between phase one and phase two of the kingdom's arrival, he is saying, you are going to be confused. You are going to be a bit let down. You are going to long for things that you're going to feel like God is not doing. You're going to look in the Bible and, and feel like this, surely this is coming. Surely this is happening. And then you're going to look out at reality and go, but I don't see it. Anyone there? Another school shooting. Lord. When are you going to fix these issues? When are you going to come and make right the brokenness in man's heart? Another wildfire ripping through our state. God, when are you going to bring healing upon our land? Another fight with my spouse. God, when are you going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten? I see you could do this. Read about it in Joel and watched it. Where is it in my marriage? Where is it in my relationships? Where is it in my life? Another 80 hour work week? God, I can't take it anymore. When is my work going to stop just, you know, bringing up thorns and thistles? When am I going to enjoy the fruit of my labor and get to enter into rest? Sabbath, you name your trial. I don't have to know what it is, but I do know without a doubt that right now in this room, every single person has one. Every single person has a place where things aren't adding up or you're wanting to say, man, uh, I get that the kingdom's already here, but, but I'm not seeing it yet in full. Yeah, I'm struggling in the mix of the, the longing and the letdown. <laughs> what is the deal with that? I want to see the kingdom come, but it feels like the king is gone. I was listening to worship music the other day while folding this massive pile of laundry in my house. And uh, as these songs came on, they were touching on this reality. And, and um, I started tearing up because I realized, and I was like, wait, 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 what's going on right now? And I realized this is where I am. This is where I'm right here feeling that too. If I'm honest with you, in many ways, because of things like what Ian's saying, just wondering what God's doing in this church and what he wants me to do with leaders. And, you know, we're going to probably have to announce soon. You probably already know, but Sally and Josh have to move. And it's confusing and complicated for me uh, to know, God, what, what's going on? And so I'm reading some of the, or I'm listening to some of these songs and they're speaking right into my longing and let down uh, feeling. And I wanted to read you some of these lyrics. This is Leland's version of the song uh, Waymaker. It goes like this. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. 
And we need that. Our souls need that. We need to hear, even when I don't see it, you're working. Because you see, that's what life is like in between the first and second comings of Christ. You're going to long to see the day of the Son of Man and you're not going to see it. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Or there's another song that came on after that, Do It Again. It's a song we, we actually sang here a couple weeks ago. Um, I love it. And uh, at the beginning, he, the, the guy who wrote it's recalling um, the, the story of Israel with Jericho, right? As they're entering the promised land and things and they march around the walls and the walls just fall down. There's this great victory of faith. Watch God do amazing things. The kingdom just showed up. But then this guy opens his song saying, kind of bemoaning the fact that it doesn't seem to be happening for me. Here's what he says. Walking around these walls. I thought by now they'd fall. You got any of those? I'm walking. I'm praying. I read about your power. I'm walking around these walls. I thought by now they'd fall. But not even a brick has so much as twitched in the wall. They're just mocking me. Right? But it goes on. But you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come, knowing the battle's won, for you have never failed me yet. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. This is the tension that we feel in the mix. The longing and the letdown between the first and second advents of Christ. There, you there? I'm there. What I realize when you read the scriptures and when you look at your life, we all kind of want God to do in one step what he's purposed to do in two, right? We're like kids kind of sitting in the back of the car and you're like going to take them to a fun destination like Disneyland or something. And they're just the whole way. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? We're just kind of like, we don't get it. We thought we'd get in the car. One side, we'd get out. The other side, like, you know, the next second and we're there. But there's this whole middle period between the two sort of things. It's like, I don't get it. This hurts. This is, this is hard. This doesn't feel fun. I was excited. Now I'm struggling. What's going on? We often want God to do in one step what he's purposed to do in two. And the call in the middle is to trust. Follow to worship. You haven't failed me yet. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. But Jesus goes on from this and he he starts mentioning uh, certain things that because of this longing and letdown and the stuff that we feel, he, he, he makes note of the fact that we're going to be vulnerable. This can leave us vulnerable when we want to see the kingdom come so better. We want the Messiah to be here or whatever it may be. It leaves us vulnerable. We are subject to the same sort of things. Interestingly enough, now Jesus' disciples were subject to the same sort of things that the Pharisees were, even though we're, we're, we're susceptible to different errors. Okay, So the Pharisees in the beginning, they're struggling with where is the kingdom? I read it in your word. I want to see it. Now, they thought what they expected, the errors, the errors that they started to go towards were, man, we want the big signs. We're going to go after the political leaders. That's who's going to kind of, you know, attract us. Yes, let's get on board with this guy or that guy or this guy. But the kingdom was going to be small. But for the disciples, it's the same sort of struggle 
But we're going to be subject to different errors, he says. For us, we long to see the Messiah. We feel the, the, the letdown of where is he? We want to see the kingdom. But, but we're going to be subject to some of the sort of secret, small stuff, actually. He's saying, like, they're going to come and say, hey, the Messiah's here. Hey, the Messiah's over there. Hey, this guy's got the, the, the inroad on the truth or the, the timeline for the end times or the eschatological playbook. We, if we crack the code, we know how it's all going to work. We got the secret knowledge. And he says, no, 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 no. Listen. The first one, they looked for something big and it was small. The second one, you're looking at all these little theories and all these little small things. It's going to be big. You are not going to be able to miss this. It will be like a bolt of lightning, he says, that flashes from one side of the heavens to the other. This image resonates with me because I spent a summer with my buddy in uh, the uh, Rocky Mountains there in Colorado. And we would go backpacking constantly. One of the best summers of my life. Loved this. And uh, if you know anything about Colorado, you know there's a lot of places where you're hiking uh, way above tree line. And you also know that uh, there are storms that can just come in in a moment. And you, you got to be ready. You don't know when these things are going to arrive. One time we were way up above uh, tree line, hiking around, big backpacks on our back and things. And this storm just comes right barreling right down on us. Big, just thunderbolt. And we're literally at this point running. I still remember. The, like literally, like, in my mind, we looked cool. Uh, we're, we're, we're running and we're actually literally running along the uh, continental divide. There's like this path. Uh, there's this trail that runs along the continental divide. We're running literally on that path as the bolts are coming down because we're the highest thing standing up, you know, the highest thing. That that's where the lightning's going to go. So we're ducking down under rocks and trying to get down below uh, the tree level. And here's the thing that comes out for me in this as I hear Jesus give this example of lightning. Having experienced something like that, what what you know is, I mean, we're sitting there praying that those bolts will miss us, but there's no doubt we don't, we didn't miss the bolts. Okay. Does that make sense? We're not going to miss them. We see them. We get it. It's loud. It's, it's ferocious. It's frightening. It's in your face. And he's saying, that's what the second coming is going to be like. It's going to be like. Now, um, if I could just quickly say something about, there's an enic, somewhat enigmatic mysterious phrase there at the end about a corpse and vultures uh i want to say something about that real quick because i think it ties in here it seems to me the disciples are asking the same sort of question at the end there that the pharisees were asking at the beginning perhaps these guys as we've come to see are slow to learn just like us they get jesus gets through all this and he goes uh they go so where is the kingdom where, where's what's going on and uh, Jesus' response is, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You look at that and you go, that was, I'm going to do a morning devotion on that. That sounds encouraging. Perhaps he's pointing to um, something that we kind of read about in Revelation 19, 17 to 21, the final judgment. And literally it says, birds come and gorge yourselves on the flesh of the fallen. Uh, but regardless, I think the idea is similar to this idea of the lightning bolt. The idea is something like this. Just as you know something's dead when you see vultures circling overhead. It's quite clear. You don't, they're not down here. They're up there. And you can see it. If you've ever seen it, you know. Oh, wow. Look at that. There's like 12 guys going down there. 
There must be something going on. In the same way, when the Son of Man arrives, the signs will all be pointing to it. You'll be able to see it. It will be clear. Um, okay. So now in verses 26 to 30, he starts to talk about that day's arrival and uh, it gets a little bit intense. So buckle your seatbelt. So I'm going to read this to you. Verses 26 to 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So here's your lightning bolt. Here's your vultures circling over the corpse. Here's the clear arrival of the Son of Man. He's saying, listen, it's going to be crazy. It's going to get real. All that they were looking for, the cataclysmic, dramatic, fireworks sort of event that they were looking for back at the first uh, kingdom phase, uh, is actually going to come in in the second. And there's a couple of quick things I wanted to bring out uh, on this point from these verses. First, the, the last day, the day of the Lord, the, uh, the, the day of the Son of Man will be a day both of judgment and salvation. I mean, you've got to notice it sounds we're drawn to the pretty crazy language that sounds like the whole day is just freaky and scary. But you've got to see Noah and Lot are there. And that's probably the point more than anything else. Noah and Lot are saved. They are rescued. They are brought out from that judgment into something that is right. They are saved from the evil generation. They are saved away from injustice, away from immorality, away from all of that, into a kingdom of righteousness. That's the idea. But then the evil generation around them in that day is destroyed. There is not just salvation. There is judgment. And so it will be on the day when Jesus returns. He is going to make all wrong right. And what that means is he's going to bring in justice and he's going to do away with evil and not just evil in a generic abstract sense, but evil doers. And he's going to bring in and allow righteousness to flourish. Now, second thing that we notice in these uh, verses, so many people, it seems, are going to find themselves caught unawares and unprepared. That seems to be clear in this is the great majority of folks uh, around Noah and Lot in this text. And then by extension, it would seem in our day as well. The great majority are going to think that uh, that this coming day is a joke. It's not it's not really coming. You Christians are silly, just kind of gathering. Oh, that's nice and cute. You get together, do your Bible studies. You live for eternity. But really, the majority of our culture and our world is going to look at that and scoff. And they're going to be caught unaware and unprepared. It's interesting when you look at the text to see kind of what it is that they were busy with, what it is that at least Jesus here brings out that they were distracted by. You see, here's here's the interesting point. 
None of the stuff that kept them from the kingdom or from the salvation that Jesus was bringing is all this flamboyant, you know, crazy, you know, stuff was going down in Sodom that was wrong, she had wrong or whatever, but that's not what Jesus brings out here. He brings out the normal everyday stuff, some pretty good stuff that they were busy with to the neglect of the one ultimate, most important thing. The arrival of the king and his kingdom. So in Noah's day, if you notice, they're eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. Verse 27. In Lot's day, they're buying and selling, planting and building. Verse 28. But in both instances, they're distracted and even idolatrous and are swept away in God's judgment. One commentator describes it well, and I I like what he says here. They were attentive to daily business as though it would last forever and neglectful of eternity as though it would never come. I read that to you again. They were attentive to daily business as though it would last forever and neglectful of eternity as though it would never come. And then suddenly it came. When we put ourselves in the story of of Noah and Lot, we recognize that Noah probably looked like an idiot. Building an ark, who knows how far away from any real major body of water. And he's just sitting there in the middle of this dry land building this boat, you know. And everyone's looking at him going, what in the world has gotten into this guy's porridge or whatever? I don't know what they ate. Uh, like, what in the world's gotten, gotten uh, into this guy's food? Like, he's, he's lost it. He's crazy. He's become the laughing stock. It looks like a joke. Why you, you don't just kind of, you know, people around here own a boat, but then they hitch it to their truck and they drive down to the water. There's no trucks. You're not hitching this thing. You're just sitting there building a boat with, no, with nowhere near the water. You go, what in the world is this man doing? And they're laughing. But there's wisdom there. Or you look at Lot's day, and it's interesting. In Genesis 19, 14, the angels say, listen, look, destruction's coming. This is not going to go well for Sodom. And, and Lot goes, man, i got to tell my sons-in-laws about this, or sons-in-law about this. i got to get in there and talk to him. And he tells them, hey, listen, we got to get out of this city. And these guys just look at their father-in-law and laugh. They laugh. That's what it says, Genesis 19, 14. Um, Uh, He comes to them and he says, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. That's a good one, dad. That's a good one. That's funny. Destruction's coming. That's That's a good joke. And then it came. The flood and the fire came. Just as the Lord had said. And they were caught unprepared and unaware. Now, I skipped over, if you noticed, verse 25 until this point. And I'm ready to bring it in now because I think we're ready to see it in its full force. Um, We saw in verses 20 to 21 that we have this already uh, part of the kingdom of God. And then now here in verses 22 through 30, we, we see the, the not yet of the kingdom of God. But then up in verse 25, we are, in essence, I think, given the reason, given the reason for this two phase, two step, two advent structure. 
We're shown why. Why come so small before you come so big? I mean, if, if, if Jesus or God were anything like us, he'd be like, no, I'm going to come in big. I don't want to be humble and low. If I got the firepower, I'm bringing it. Why? Why go low and then come high? What's that all about? Verse 25 gives us the reason. Before Jesus can usher in the kingdom in all its glory and power, there is something he says he must do first. And hallelujah, praise be to God, he goes through with it. Look back up at verse 24 and we'll read to verse 25. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He just drops that in the middle of this discussion about his authority and his power and how he's going to reign and how he's going to bring in this judgment. He just says, oh, yeah, but first. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. You see, in other words, before he's come to reign. He's come to die. Before he's come to sit on a throne, he's come to hang from a cross. Before he's come to wear a crown of gold, he's come to wear a crown of thorns. Before he's come to bring in the final judgment, he's come to be judged in our place. I mean, this is a king like no other. Now, this is so important for us to realize because that he's got to do this first. Is there's this text in the book of Amos that I found so interesting at this point. Um, and the Jews don't didn't get it. They didn't understand. But they, they would look at the day of the Lord. They'd look at the coming of the kingdom and this promise that God was going to show up in power. And they'd go, yes, amen, hallelujah, bring it on. We know we'll be on the right side of that judgment. We know it's going to be a good day when the king comes because he, he's king in Israel. He's going to set up his throne in Israel. Oh, yes. Sit on the throne of David. This sounds good. He's for us. They thought it was going to be a good day. And they didn't get it. We're all like this where we kind of think that we're. You know, oh, are we bad? You know, we're not bad people. We're not innocent, but we're not bad people. And God's going to come and he's going to stand for us. And we're in the right and and he's going to vindicate. And this is where these Israelites were. And Amos says this. In essence, you, you don't understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Amos 5, 18 to 19. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Did you hear that? He said, I mean, we're so sick of these oppressors. We're so sick of these political people coming and, and taking over. We can't wait for the day of the Lord. And he goes, are you kidding me? You want to run from Nebuchadnezzar? You want to run from whoever? You're going to be running from a lion to a bear. The day of the Lord is not going to go well for you. 
Your hearts are not right. You're shot through with sin. I am holy. How could you think no man will stand on the right side of God on that day unless... Verse 25 of Luke 17 happens first. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Here's what that means. Jesus takes the lion and the bear. Jesus takes the flood and the fire. Jesus is going to take the lightning bolt of God's anger that should have struck down upon me. The vultures are going to circle over Jesus's corpse on the cross. You, you feeling that? Before he's come to reign, he has come to die. But first, but first, you don't want Christmas. I'm telling you, you need it. You don't want Calvary. I'm telling you, if I don't go there, it's not going to end well for you. The final judgment, the last day is not going to be good. Going to run from a lion to a bear, but I'm taking both at Calvary. And I will rise up over them in victory on your behalf so that sinner though you be, you can come into the kingdom of God and find not judgment. Though you deserve it. But salvation. Life. This is amazing. It is amazing. Okay. The in-between. Part number three here, and this is where I'm going to close. I'm not going to take too much time on this, just in case you're worried. Um, the in-between, verses 31 to 37. We look at this two-advent structure. We look at the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God and the cross of Christ that's interposed in between. And, and, and we say, okay, so what now? What do we do Living in the in-between. What is there for us? And, and, and what should this look like? Well, uh, those of you who like action plans, I have a three-step action plan for you. You check this off, eternity is going to go well for you. I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but at the same time, not. Uh, I'm going to boil down these uh, verses here, 31 through 37, into three essential action steps, if you will, to answer the question, what should life look like in the in-between? What should you and I be doing if, in view of these things? The first uh, thing, the first action step you could say, action step number one is um, release. Release. The first thing we need to do, it seems to me, is let go of earthly treasures. Let go of earthly pursuits. Uh, let go of the stuff that we've wrapped our hearts around that are going to perish and start to prioritize the kingdom of God. Release everything for his sake. Now, again, Jesus says himself, listen, you, you pursue, seek first the kingdom of God and the stuff you need will be added. It doesn't mean, you know, you're not going to have food. It doesn't mean you're not going to, we'll see more of this in a moment, but it does mean what has your heart? What is it? If it's not God, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be your demise in the end. You got to know the sinful nature. There's this sort of suicidal tendency to it. We cling, we hold on to the very things that are going to kill us. So this is what starts to come out. Verse 31 on that day, 
He says, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. <laughs> and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. There's a, sort of, there's a sort of release that has to happen, a break that has to be made. Where in our hearts we say, listen, we are going to run after Christ and that's it. And we get this idea when it comes to, I mean, sadly, all, all the fires and stuff that we probably know people who've been in that situation. We've heard the stories. When the fire comes, you don't go back into your house. And, Let me try to grab my laptop. Let me grab my video game console. No, not my old Nintendo, you know, whatever. My family you know, portrait or whatever it is. No, we know. Listen, if I turn back and run into that house, I could lose my life. All that stuff, as precious as it is to me, can burn because I don't want to lose my life in the process. I want to save it. And so there's this sort of release that has to happen. There's this, there's this running from these things that we see. And that's why Jesus brings out in verse 33, I love this, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You turn back and you go into that house and you start to polish your brass on a sinking ship. It's going to go down. You may have your brass. Whew, you were rich for those last moments. But now you're in the bottom of the sea. Instead, he says, no, if you want to save your life, you, you release, you leave all of that for Christ's sake. And you run after him. Now, that leads to action step number two. Action step number two, I'd say, is receive. So first release and then receive. And I think this is important to note in all of this, that we're not just running from something terrible. You may look at all that Jesus has to say here, go, well, I want to run from that. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Judgment and flood and fire and what lightning bolts and all that. I'll run from that. But there's more than just running from something terrible here. We are actually running towards something wonderful. We're not just running from God's wrath. We're running towards God's grace. We're not just running from destruction. We're running towards salvation. We're not just releasing all of our earthly treasures. We are receiving the one treasure that is more valuable above all. Namely, Christ himself and with him, his righteousness, his grace, his love, his inheritance, his spirit, all of that, his protection. It is not like you're getting the raw end of the deal. When you leave all for the kingdom of God, it is not loss to lose your little kingdom to gain the kingdom of God. One commentator puts it this way. The kingdom of God is more than escaping wrath. It is receiving eternal life from the hand of the son of man. And whoever receives that life can no longer yearn for the life that the world offers. So it's not just releasing it's receiving. It's receiving the one for whom you were created, the one about whom all of life is, you know, is about. It's not like you lose here. You gain. You gain. And then finally, action step number three is this idea of reorient. Reorient. So release, receive, and now reorient. Uh, I don't have much time for this one, but it is significant. And I, I want to linger here as we close, um, because perhaps you've heard what I've said up to this point, what Jesus has been saying. 
you, you see, say, uh, all the, you know, the people in Noah's day, the people in Lot's day. You watch as they're all, you know, uh, enamored with stuff, distracted with everyday common activities like eating and drinking and marriage and all this stuff. And because of that, they, 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 they miss, they're, un, they're unaware, they're unprepared for the day of the Lord. And then you hear me talk about this idea. Listen, you need to lose your life. Don't, don't you know, to, to gain it, you need to let go of all this stuff. Don't turn back into the house when it's on fire. You go uh, and you might think, okay, what that means is I got to let go of all, all common everyday worldly stuff. Like that means no longer the eating, no longer the drinking, no longer the normal things. I'm just, I'm just out in the wilderness somewhere with John the Baptist doing my thing, waiting for the day to come. But interestingly enough, as we come to some of these last verses, we see a different thing pictured. And I love this because it shows how earthy and and how everyday and common and at times even mundane, the spirit filled uh, Christ centered life really is. Check this out. Look at verses 34 to 35 or yeah, 35 here for a moment. Jesus says this. I tell you in that night, there will be two in one bed. He's talking again about this this coming day. There will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding flour uh, together. One will be taken and the other left. And here's what's so awesome about, about this. In each of these illustrations, uh, both sets of people are doing the same kind of common everyday stuff. It doesn't get more common than sleeping and, and preparing dinner. And yet, Jesus isn't saying, man, look at them. They're so distracted. They miss the kingdom. No. One of them missed the kingdom. But one of them, in the midst of doing those common everyday things, was ready for the kingdom, was living for the kingdom. One of them is saved. The other one is condemned. Externally doing the very same things. Internally, something completely different going on. Same stuff outside. Different reasons, motivation, heart on the inside. I think that's wonderful and important for us to know. The meaning here plainly, I think, is that sleeping and, and working or to add some of the stuff we saw with no one lot, uh, eating and drinking and, and, and marrying and all this stuff. None of those things are bad in and of themselves as if get rid of those. Only idolaters do that. No, what we see here is that all of those things can be done unto the glory of God. All of those things can be done with a view not to saving your life and and, and building your kingdom, but actually releasing your life in service of others in his kingdom. There's a way to sleep in a way that gives glory to God. There's a way to eat in a way that gives glory to God. There's a way to work in a way that is actually preparing you for the kingdom to come, not just living in this kingdom now. And that's what's so beautiful, you see, when you've released these things and you've uh, received Christ and the gospel and his grace and his spirit. What it does, it doesn't send you off into the wilderness to be a, a, a monk. It sends you right back into the everyday realities of sleeping and working and eating. But it reorients your whole approach so that now you see I'm here for so much more. And you do those things with the king and his kingdom in mind, not with myself as the king in my kingdom. You see that? You with me? It's beautiful. 
It's beautiful. That's how we live in the in-between. In the space between the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We release, we receive, and we let that reorient all that we do. Let's pray. God, thank you for this uh, time in your word. Now, Lord, we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. We pray it would penetrate our hearts, that we would be transformed. God, I ask where we've been complacent where we've been apathetic, where we've been acting along with the people in Noah's and Lot's day, like, eh, you know what? That, that day is never going to come. But I pray that you would sober us up. And God, where we've been uh, with the side of those disciples discouraged and, and dejected and depressed, wondering where is the king? Where is his kingdom? I pray that you would uh, refresh their hearts with remembrance that there are two phases to this and that you are not going to default on your promises. You're coming and all the world will see. Thank you, Jesus, for your work. Thank you for your word. God, we worship you. In Jesus name. Amen.